This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. Today we're having a conversation with Jordan Nelson, a composer and chair of music theory and oral skills at Coburn Conservatory. We're going to talk about contemporary academic music, composition, and the ways we listen to music today. Thank you for joining me today, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to start our conversation by looking back at revolutionary work that actually divided the history of music into before and after. I'm talking about 4.33 by John Cage. These four minutes, 33 seconds of silence was something unheard of. And that epitomized Cage's idea that everything could be an auditory experience and constitute music. I'm curious about how you, as a contemporary composer, perceive the John Cage and his heritage. I love that you bring up that work and how you framed it, because indeed, it, it, for me, it was about the kind of emancipation of sound as a musical event. And um, I find it to be very inspiring when I'm writing music of all sorts of mediums, but I work in electronic music in addition to acoustic music. And one of the things I find myself often drawn to with electronics is the ability to take things out of, shall we say, everyday sounds, take things that are not normally considered a part of music and make them musical. And I do believe that just opening up the possibility that a, a chair creaking in the back of the hall is part of the sonic experience of 433. And it also brings up the idea that where you are in that moment and who you're with is part of the artistic experience, or part of the sonic experience. And I love that. And so I feel inspired perhaps also conceptually just in that idea of really embracing all the kinds of experiential elements that go along with the sound and the sound making. You mentioned the sound of a chair creaking. Many contemporary composers use unconventional musical instruments that they construct themselves or they just use everyday objects. What formal experience are you interested in that regard? One of the first things that comes to my mind is percussion and the, the sort of the idea that percussion has become, especially in the last several decades, such a sense of you can hit just about anything. You can make just about anything into a percussive event. I've written a, a band piece for a middle school, advanced middle school level band where the whole percussion section is playing on trash cans. I'm not the only person to have come up with this idea of hitting trash cans, but for me, there's a theatricality and I even think they, I don't know, hopefully it's a fun experience these young musicians to get to bang on a trash can as part of a concert, as part of a stage, musical, serious, quote unquote, piece. And I like that levity that that brings. But as I said, again, electronics, I find myself very drawn to recording the sounds of nature, recording the sounds of, I have a project I did where I did a lot of hiking and walking through nature and getting the sounds of rocks and leaves and all the sort of elements that kind of bring a narrative or bring a story to the listener's mind. And I think that that's, that's very inspiring. I have not myself invented new instruments per se, but I have enjoyed exploring ways to use normal instruments, shall I say, quote unquote, normal instruments, standard instruments, 
in less conventional ways, including asking people to speak in pieces when they were they are not normally vocalists. Asking, I have a piece for orchestra where the orchestra speaks, whispers throughout it. And I think it's fun to push those boundaries of what it is to perform. And how would you composition in technical terms? Is it like structuring sounds into certain matrices? What is it for you? Yeah, um, I think it, one angle is definitely the idea of taking sonic events and structuring them into some sort of story. There's often the idea of, is something that I'm hearing the same or similar or is something new? Is it different? And that just idea of playing with storytelling, I think of we create form and, and drama out through that kind of idea of repetition or variation. I also find myself really drawn to trying to think about the sort of experiential element of the piece. It's not just about the sounds, but it's also about the way the sounds are made, what we for the performers, for instance, I have a background as a performer, so I'm very drawn to that as a composer. And also, I think, I hope for the audience and for the listener, there can be an element that has to do with experience. I like very visual, thinking about the visual of the piece and those kinds of elements. Maybe there's one element to add into about what composition is, which is the, the concept. Sometimes it, it's, uh, it's very much drawn by, or driven by something that is conceptual that is then informing how the sound of it occurs. Actually, I wanted to ask you about this connection between the concept, the purely logical side of composing music and something that is related to your emotional state, your emotional experience. To what extent is a composition purely logical and where is this God's element? <laughs> I think it might be different for every artist and perhaps for every individual project within an artist's journey, because you can't deny the element of the, uh, I mean, you want your emotion, you want your humanity to come through and not just be about some sort of logical structure. But I think we're drawn to logic and drawn to structure, especially for me, I'm also very driven by formal logic. So I often find myself having a lot of creativity and, and flexibility within something that's relatively conceptual, which is, for instance, like a, one of the most recent pieces I did is it had this sort of very consistent structure of these recurring short, what I thought was pillars, and then these kind of more individual portrait sections. So there was this very formal drive for that for me. I had a teacher who was one of my favorite teachers that I studied with, Stephen Hartke, who talked about concept or plans being useful up until they're no longer useful. And that you essentially can get to a juncture where you thought you were doing X, you had a plan to do X, or you had a, a logic that was driving things to do X. And then you get, you can get to that juncture where you make a, shall we say more of a, perhaps in the moment decision, or, or you can always turn off your logic or change your system or break the pattern that you thought you were doing. You can always make the decision to do something different and you never have to hold yourself to your previous plan. You can always be flexible. In fact, it's a good thing to be flexible. And maybe that's an element of what you're getting at is that idea of if I have a plan to do something and then I'm working on it for several months, I get to a juncture where I have some sort of life or emotional or just subconscious reason to change my mind. I think that's very important to, to follow those leads. Absolutely. I would also like to talk about 
cross-disciplinarity in music and in art in general. I think it's especially present in contemporary opera where you have multimedia artists, you have composers, you have lighting designers working together, even programmers who develop some special software for such pieces. What kind of technologies are you interested in? Thank you for that. I'm very driven by collaboration and cross-disciplinary collaboration. And I have been interested for a long time in working with visual arts and have some of that's been more kind of physical, working with painters and more in-person kind of artistic events. And then I've also been working occasionally with people who are doing more technology-based art. There's really wonderful ways you can use computers to process sound and then use that to drive visuals. I worked with a violist and visual artist pair in, they were living, they're in New York now. They were living in Rochester, New York at the time, Cindy Lon and Rafael Galvis. And we were building a, a piece out of improvisations that Cindy put in the viola, put through electronics processing that, uh, I slightly designed and Raphael slightly designed to drive these visuals that were occurring behind Cindy as she played this lighting projections and things. And uh, I think there's a, a whole lot to be done in that angle that I'm very curious about and wanting to find collaborators on. I've also enjoyed working with dancers and choreographers before I've done a couple of things along those lines. And that can be really fun for me because it's another one of the art forms that is a temporal art form and that deals with some of the same ideas or can deal with some of the same ideas that I think about with music. So I, I have a, a lot of fascination with that, but yeah, I, as I said, I think it's my biggest drives creatively is to find those opportunities to collaborate. And sometimes if I can collaborate with artists of other art forms. That's wonderful. Another interesting thing about modern art is the attention span I think it affects both creators and the audience. For instance, a while ago, I spoke with an opera director and he was staging an opera, a contemporary opera about space exploration. And that was just one hour long. That would be unimaginable in the 19th century. And now it's normal or it's getting normal. So what are your thoughts on this attention span and how is it changing art and uh, music composition and our perception of it? I totally agree that there it has just been a general evolution of attention span to be shorter and shorter. I think people are, there's more of a need, for instance, perhaps for a piece to bring people in quickly and less to rely upon people's curiosity and willingness to give a project a lot of thinking time or a lot of listening time before it gives them perhaps the reward that. Uh, they seek. So I, I think that in general, probably attention span means for all of our projects, concert length projects, people are not going to stick around for as long of a, of a, a musical event. There are obviously exceptions, but I think that might be a general trend. I, I perhaps part of the problem in that I also have an attention span that draws me away from the three plus hour operas and towards something more like a one hour opera. And I think for me, there's something that can be exciting about 
honing the kind of attention span that people are dr drawn to right now. Something, as I said, that brings people in quickly, grabs them and really holds their attention span. For me, when I hear a piece that does that for me, I'm so engaged that I am really driven to try to do that in my own work. And I, I certainly acknowledge that my work is not going to, an individual piece of mine won't be for everybody. I'm not always trying to speak to everybody in the audience, but I'm hoping that I can speak to the people who are there and draw them in and hold their attention span, even though we may generally be driven internet and all these kinds of mediums make information and excitement come so quickly. We want to find new energy and excitement so quickly that uh, we don't always have the patience for the long haul. So yeah, I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky. Multimedia can be wonderful for me because it's another way to keep people's attention span and perhaps to have multiple sort of pacings going on at the same time. A piece can have a sort of sense of long pacing if the visuals have a sense of kind of quick change. You as a composer, so when you're working, you're working on a piece, what are your ways to focus on what you're doing and not to be distracted by thoughts about where to go, who to meet, to up with, and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> the inevitable life. One of the things I tell my composition students, which I also tell myself, is that I want to try to compose as often as possible. That means certainly trying to be daily and sometimes multiple times a day. And for me, that requirement or that expectation is to sit down and try to compose for at least five minutes. Low bar. The idea for being that I think sometimes we, it's a practice and I have to keep up my practice of composition. And hopefully in that five minutes, I've gotten inspired to keep going and working for longer. It often turns into two to three hours if I have the time. But it also gives me the ability to just say, right now, I'm not feeling as uh, focused as I want to be. So I'm going to come back and try it again tomorrow or later today. And that can include to, to go make plans with friends or to turn my attention to teaching work or various other things that I have on my plate. I think giving myself that kind of requirement to try frequently, but ability to turn away from pretty quickly as well is the, a balance that keeps me moving. And I get inspired uh, to work a lot longer most of the time when I'm really working on a piece. It's the early stages that are sometimes a little trickier with a piece where you're not really feeling it. So you try it for a couple minutes and then you say, all right, I'm going to look at it again tomorrow. Look at it again in a different way. Look at it. I looked at it on my computer today. Tomorrow, I'm going to look at it at the piano. Or tomorrow, I'm going to... Tomorrow, another thing I like to do, and I tell my students this, is I'm going to go for a walk with a specific intention of thinking about what I'm working on. But I'm not going to bring it with me necessarily. Sometimes I might bring MIDI with me if I'm really trying to process something about how long a section should be or what order something should go. And I can play around with that with MIDI. But generally, I try to just hear it in my head or think about it in my head. And then that can be another really valuable bit of a bit of composition work, even though it's not technically the engraving work. I would say that requires not only working on an idea, but also self-introspection, because you have to understand when you are in a state to compose. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's where um, there's a conversation almost to be had internally between that. And then the practice of it, which is to say, I don't need to be feeling like I want to do it, but it's still worth trying to do it for that couple of minutes. And often it can be the way I get out of the, dare I say, bad mood. 
<laughs> where I it's where I get then really focused and energized. Uh, by the way, what is the composer's mindset? Not all musicians become composers. How was it with you? At what point did you realize you wanted to be a composer? I had a very unique background, or maybe not unique, but I had a very lucky background in that my dad's a composer. So I grew up in a household where I knew a composer, I knew composers existed, and I saw a composer being a composer. And I think I was improvising early on before I really thought of it as improvising. It was usually in order to not have to practice. I'd be sitting there playing something and I didn't really want to play it. So I just make up my own notes. And I think it was probably around the age of 11 or 12 when I first was given the ability to use like a computer software. It was like a kid computer software for composing, but it was absolutely taking music and putting it into a computer and playing around with it. So I had it as a, almost as a, just an extension of being a playing as a kid. It was another way to be creative. I thought I wanted to be a visual artist as a young kid. And then I moved more into music and I went to college, but majored in music. I went to a liberal arts undergraduate. I didn't do a, a composition undergraduate because I, at that point, was trying to play with other potential identities of where I might go professionally. I wasn't totally sure I wanted to follow exactly in my father's footsteps. But I fairly quickly realized that was something I wanted to do. And then I, I think I really committed basically my junior year of college to, to going on and getting graduate degrees and being a composer as my career, being a composer and a teacher. Interesting. So you finally got a degree in composition specifically. Yeah, I did a master's and a doctorate in composition specifically at uh, USC Thornton School of Music. I'm asking because I'm interested if there are some prerequisites for training in composition or it should be more flexible in your opinion. I think the only prerequisite is curiosity. I think everybody should compose because I just think it's a wonderful outlet. Now, it's tricky to have access to some of the ways that I found that I used to compose, having computer programs, having a, I, having a piano was really important for me because I was already playing the piano. I had a way to already experience music expression, but I think everybody should compose. And I think to be a composer, it's degrees or training is not at all required. I will say for me, one of the things is I wanted to be a professor of composition. I wanted to literally do what my dad did. I wanted to be hired at a, at a school to be teaching music theory and composition. And that has been changing recently, but still for up until very recently, I think the expectation was that one would have advanced degrees in that art form. But it's not exclusively true anymore, thankfully, because I think it's not, it shouldn't be the gatekeeper. It's not just about, did you do degrees? I think studying composition is a joy, and I hope I never get to a point where I'm not allowed to study with a teacher, meaning I sometimes now it's just talking to my friends, my colleagues about music, but it's a joy to talk about composing with somebody. And that can be in a lot of either degree formal ways or, or non-formal ways, individual lessons, or there's some, a lot of really wonderful programs out there for composers, especially young composers to, to get mentored and work with musicians. And that's the training I think people should have is just experience and, uh, and then a curiosity to keep going. Absolutely. 
you're working with young composers and you can observe how they're growing and what they're interested in. Is there a generational thing about them that can characterize them or is it all very individual? That's an interesting question. The Colburn Conservatory doesn't have a composition program, so we don't have any composers at the school other than some of the students who are there as performers but are additionally enjoying composing. I work with a really interesting young composers program that's affiliated with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and so it's high school aged composers, many of whom are quite advanced and very inspiring to work with. And there I've seen an interesting cross-section of young composers, all living in the Los Angeles area, but with a whole variety of backgrounds musically, some people coming from more of a conventional classical place, some people coming more from jazz, some people coming more from fascination with music for film and video games or all these things. And I think there's no consistency across the generation that I can observe. I'm, I'm excited and inspired by them because I think that I believe there's this continual growing embrace of, of a true Pollyanna of music, that the true sense of music is music. We can explore music in all different genres and all sorts of different ways and not feel so confined by expectations. And I think that the, we're continuing to, continuing to benefit from that openness and seeing young composers coming up with such a sense of joy and creativity and freedom with their music making is inspiring. This uh, intergenerational dialogue is very important, I think. It's also a source of inspiration. I absolutely agree. Yeah, it is. My last question for you is the one I ask all my guests. It's related to the title of my podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human? The answer for me is that there's an intersection between being human, being an individual that's a part of a much larger picture, but also being your own at your own spot in time. And being modern for me is the, is the question I think related specifically with music of how, what do I have to give to this world of music? How do I express myself in a way that is now? And I think allowing myself to, to be, to absorb ideas and thoughts and sounds from every direction and every possible influence and allowing myself to explore and express myself. I have the joy of expressing myself with music. That's part of showing my humanity and being in the now. I, I can't be anything other than myself now and therefore express what I want to express without too much critique, <laughs> too much self-critique, I guess I should say. Is that a fair answer? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Self-critique is always there because we always want to do something better and something bigger. I think that's it's one of the hardest things about being a human and in any field, in any especially creative field, I think we have this angel devil of the self-critique because it's what drives us to keep challenging ourselves and keep improving. And generally, it's probably what's driven us to get to where we are. But then on the other hand, it can also hold us back from getting where we really can go and where we really, and really showing who we have to show, what we have to show. So I, again, with myself and with people I talk to about composition, it's, 
think it's very important to try to, um, to turn on and off the self-critique or to acknowledge it and say, okay, that's me questioning whether this, what I just wrote was good music. So rather than use that to say, this is, I'm going to throw it out and start over. I'm going to say, okay, well, how can I make it better? Or maybe I should set that aside and come back to it and ask myself tomorrow. Do I still think that's not along the right lines? Or maybe I can see something tomorrow that I can't see today because my self-critic is just working a little bit too hard. That's so true. Thank you so much for being my guest today. All the best to you. I wish you a lot of inspiration and success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. A new episode of Being Modern, Being Human will come out in two weeks, as usual. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. That will help others discover the podcast and enjoy it as much as you do. In the meantime, take care and have a good time.